Day seven of our Rohatsu Sishin, and uh, seems bright and crisp today. Uh, I really enjoyed Sishin. Uh, I hope that you have here and out there, uh, even with our. I think there's something about the schedule that we created that. Uh, inadvertently was conducive to uh, going deeply. Uh, even though our day was somewhat abbreviated, uh, we had these two long blocks of Zazen in the morning and the afternoon. Uh, and that just felt really good. And it's something about I think that often our, our sashins, there's a lot of activity even within the, the considerable sitting that we do. There's, there's meals, there's serving, there's washing dishes. Uh, there's, this, this was quite a simplified routine. And so it seemed, uh, very quiet. Uh, and I think that the weather, which was a little cold and damp at times, also is conducive to going inside. So uh, here we are uh, in our seventh day, and it's not over yet. So this afternoon, um, we'll have two slightly shorter periods of zazen, and then uh, we'll conclude sashin as we traditionally do the rohatsu with uh, what's called shosan ceremony. And shosan ceremony is a way that we bring forth the dharma together. Uh, it's it's really In a certain way, it's like the public dokusan. Uh, and you're invited to uh, ask me a question, uh, a Dharma question, as much as possible. And uh, I will try to answer. Uh, and hopefully some of the answers, I will try to answer you. I'm not going to, uh, I'm going to try to avoid abstractions. If each person who asks a question, even though there may be a general uh, application of that question, uh, it's their question. And I'll do my best to speak to you as befitting whatever relationship we may be in and whatever understanding we have together. Uh, it's good to, if you formulate a question in advance, that's fine. If another question comes up while you're sitting here, just get rid of the first one. And if nothing comes up, trust yourself to see what arises when, when we actually meet. And it's also really acceptable simply to stand and bow uh, and not necessarily ask a question if, if there's not one that's uh, on your mind. 
try to be succinct as you do this, uh, and I will, my answers will be, uh, we'll try to be succinct. Uh, so what that means is uh, there's a temptation to uh, offer a long preamble to a question. Uh, see if you can avoid the preamble and just cut to the chase. And we'll take questions, I think, from the people, people here in the room and from people who are on Zoom. And that will be the conclusion of our session. So uh, before I move on, uh, are there any questions about that? The exact procedure will be uh, laid out to you. Yeah, Ross. Thank you. I thought, could you uh, say a little bit about the difference between answering a question and responding to a question? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I will be responding to questions. I, I may not answer your question. You may find that's an answer, but essentially it's just a response. It's just call and response. And uh, I will say if you, if you're not satisfied or if you don't understand the response, it's okay to ask a, to make a further inquiry but let's try to avoid getting into a an extended dialogue. Other questions? Maybe this may be unfamiliar to you, but it's it's quite wonderful. It's a really uh, open and intimate process that we're doing. Anything out there? No, I don't see anything. Good. Great. So uh, one point of business that I want to uh, touch on from yesterday before we move on, uh, just yesterday Rob asked a question. Uh, he was remembering something that I said a few days ago. Uh, and I want to, I want to, uh, and he was talking about that as uh, something he was exploring in, in his Sazen. And I wanted to give you the exact quote. The exact quote is from, it's from Hongju, from Cultivating the, open, the Empty Field. And the quotation is, take the backward step and directly reach the middle of the circle from where the light issues forth. Take the backward step and directly reach the middle of the circle from where the light issues forth. So I'm not gonna talk about that, but I just wanted to give you the quotation and uh, it's, it's one of a number of memorable quotations about this light that everyone has and how we might practice with it. So, um, to come to towards the end of the Fukan Zazenki, uh, I'm going to carry on from where we were yesterday uh, in the text. This being the case, intelligence or lack of it does not matter. Between the dull and the sharp-witted, there is no distinction. If you concentrate your efforts single-mindedly, that is negotiating the way. Practice realization is naturally undefiled. Going forward in practice is a matter of everydayness. So uh, we come back to a restatement of 
this principle of practice realization of the the wholeness of practice realization, the the not-to-ness of practice realization. Uh, as he's reiterating it from the beginning of the text. Uh, one of the commentators says, since negotiating the way practice realization in Sazen is the practice realization of ultimate reality. It is beyond all the defining distinctions and dualities arriving from conscious striving. So again, as we've been talking about, um, we're aiming at a practice that has no aim which is hard to get your mind around. Uh, but just relax into it. The next sentence is, going forward is a matter of everydayness. And this is an allusion to another koan and a famous uh, dialogue between uh, Master Zhaozhou or Joshu and uh, his own teacher so when he was a student, uh, Nanchuan. Zhaozhou asked Nanchuan, What is the way? Nanchuan said, Everyday mind is the way. Zhaozhou asked, well, does one proceed along it or not? And Nantron said, once you think about going forward, you go wrong. So Dogen is playing with this when he says, going forward in practice is a matter of everydayness. So this everyday mind My experience um, you know I've been fortunate to meet teachers and 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 people who I felt were quite awake and uh, another way to translate this everyday mind is the way is the way is ordinary mind is the way uh -huh. That's another translation that we come across. And what I've experienced when meeting uh, even prominent uh, teachers and spiritual figures is uh, this very strong quality of ordinariness, of everydayness. For me, I think that's one of the that's one of the the great I don't know just compelling aspects that we experienced in our in our late teacher soldier, and I think that he experienced in Suzuki Roshi. There is no uh, there's no was no drama. There was no airs. There was, there were no brocade robes, or you know, fancy fancy clothing or vehicles. You know, there was just this quality of ordinariness, and you can miss that. You cannot not see it. But also, you can have your your eyes open to it and see it. And for me, uh, this ordinariness is it's kind of a quality. It's a quality that I admire most when I encounter it.
Uh, and and I, I aspire to it. Uh, and that's a work in progress. But it's ordinary. And we also realize it's not exactly plain. It's plain, I'm sorry. It's not, it is plain. Uh, it's not, it's not a place to stand on. It's not a position. It's just something that one can respond to. Uh, it doesn't, it doesn't define somehow the power relations between you and that person. It allows, it allows a transparency and it allows a, uh, what, in the context of, uh, say, Ross's question just now, it allows just response, just simple response rather than definitive answer. So Dogen says, going forward in a practice is a matter of everydayness, or it's a matter of ordinariness. And also that word ordinary is a word that I love uh, because it has, it has a whole envelope of meaning. Uh, you know, it means in the proper order in a kind of sequence. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's applied to religious communities, which are uh, seen as orders, uh, not orders in terms of rank, but just, we have a way of doing things together. And that's, that's ordinary. So to go on, in general, this world and other worlds as well, both in India and China, equally hold the Buddha seal and overall prevails the character of this school. What, this school is not what he, he doesn't mean the Soto school. He means the Buddha school. Uh, prevails over the character of the school, which is simply devotion to sitting, total engagement in immobile sitting. Now that's interesting. I was examining this. There, you can find online, there's a, uh, a collection that somebody did of line by line, six translations of Fukan Zazengi, where you can compare their, their different translations. And I found, I did find an interesting translation. Uh, if, I, if I printed it. Yeah, this is in uh, a book by the scholar Carl Bielfeld, uh, who um, edited together Dogen's manuals on meditation. Uh, and his translation is interesting. I don't see it in, in other translations. Let me see if I can find it. Oh, yeah. Uh, so where this translation says, simply devotion to sitting, total engagement in a mobile sitting. He says, uh, they devote themselves only to sitting. They are obstructed by fixedness. So I don't, I don't know what to make of it. They are obstructed by fixedness. I don't know what to make of it, but what I would say is, um, again, what, what Sojin often talked about was even within our seeming immobile sitting or stillness, let's put it that way, uh, 
there's dynamic activity. There's activity all of us know as we're sitting. We are minutely adjusting and regulating our posture, our breath, our mind. Outwardly, we appear in a general way immobile, but there's something about this, uh, this word immobile sitting as if, to me it implies sitting as if you are a rock. And I don't think that's, something about immobile sitting doesn't include the fluidity and flexibility of our sitting. So that's just, that's just my take on it. Um, and I think you don't have to agree, but I think you, you can take each line in Fukansa Zenki or any other teaching and come to your own, investigate what the teacher is saying and come to your own understanding of it. So I see this as uh, total engagement in dynamic stillness. Go on, although it is said that there are many minds, as many minds as there are persons, still they all negotiate the way solely in zazen. That's a kind of exhortation. Uh, why leave behind the seat that exists in your home and go aimlessly off to the dusty realms of other lands? If you make one misstep, you go astray from the, from the way directly before you. Um, you may go to other realms to practice. That may be the case. That may be what's called for in your life. What he's, I think, critiquing here is, uh, it's interesting, just again, the language is very interesting. Go, why, why, why leave behind the seat that exists in your home? This is your home here, this is Zendo. Uh, and go aimlessly off to the dusty realms of other lands. Well, actually, I think that usually when we go off to the dusty realms of other lands, it's actually not aimless. Maybe a better translation would be, uh, and go pointlessly off to the dusty realms of other lands. Usually, if you're going to travel, uh, you know, if you're going from monastery to monastery, uh, you're looking for something. You have a gaining idea. So you have, you have an aim. Uh, and what you're saying is, you may have an aim, but you're missing the fact that the Dharma is right here, wherever we are, wherever we sit, wherever we sit. I'm remembering a friend who uh, I had, had an ongoing sort of debate with years and years ago who wanted to, she was, she was set on going to Burma uh, because she wanted to be enlightened. And she thought that I should go right there. I should go to Burma because that's, that's where they're really doing it. And that's where uh, the tradition comes from and it's still alive. And I felt, well, you can do this, but there's nothing missing in the practice where you are, at least the way I see it. But go ahead. And she did. And 
it turns out uh, she had a terrible time <laughs> and was so relieved to get home and practice here. In other, the other side of that is just uh, think about uh, our son, Gimpo, who just decided he wanted to immerse himself in monastic practice and uh, decided to go to Japan. And that was really good for him. So that he went to Japan and said he could come back here and plant his Dharma flag here at home. Sometimes you have to go away and come back. There's also this line uh, is an allusion to the, the parable of the lost son in the Lotus Sutra. Uh, We've talked about that when we had the Lotus Sutra class. He uh, leaves home and travels to a distant land and experiences terrible hardship. And he's so lost in his life, he comes back and doesn't even recognize where he is and doesn't recognize his father. Uh, and his father brings him along very, his father doesn't uh, press that recognition, but gives him a job working in, uh, first working in the stables, then working at various tasks, and then reveals to him that they are father and son, and that all that the father has belongs to him. The whole treasure of the Dharma belongs to us. It's right here, right here in this Sindo. Sadogan so goes on, you have gained the pivotal opportunity of human form. Do not use your time in vain. You are maintaining the essential working of the Buddha way. I really like that line. That's a line, that's another line that, that leapt out at me uh, yesterday when we were reading, uh, this is what we were doing, even though we're not, we may have no gaining idea, together we are maintaining the essential working of the Buddha way, together by our practice here in Sejin, by our practice day by day, we're, we're maintaining the Buddhist teachings by uh, bringing forth our Buddha nature and sharing it uh, as freely as we can with anyone who wishes to come. Who would take wasteful delight in a spark from the flintstone? Besides, form and substance are like the dew on the grass. Destiny like the dark of lightning, emptied in an instant, vanished in a flash. Things happen quickly, our life passes by in but a moment. Sometimes those moments seem awful long, but it's quick, don't miss it. And then, please honored followers of Zen, long accustomed Long accustomed to groping for the elephant, do not be suspicious of the true dragon. Probably you know one or both of these stories. Uh, there's a, I think it's it's quite cross cultural, but the the story uh, it takes place is found in the Nirvana Sutra of a king who brought an elephant to a group of blind men. And each one of them touched a different part of the elephant and uh, came to a different conclusion about the animal that they were encountering. Uh, 
you know, it's like a tree trunk, it's like a snake, it's like a wall. Uh, their understanding was based on their, the limited quality of their individual experience. So uh, long accustomed to groping for the elephant, we're groping for the elephant in our life. And it's good. We actually, we're not blind. We have the opportunity to open our eyes. And then there's, uh, do not be suspicious of the two dragon. This is, this is a wonderful story. Uh, which again, many, many of you may have heard. So this is a story in, uh, in Chinese, uh, in the Chinese literature about a man named uh, Ye Kung Tzu, who loved uh, dragons. Uh, he had paintings and carvings of dragons uh, all over his house. Just, you know, he was totally into dragons. And one day, a dragon happened to hear about this guy's interest and love of love of dragons and he said oh i'm gonna go visit him i think he would really like that uh, and so he flew down from the sky and poked his head through Ye's window and he scared him witless and he went screaming from his house <laughs> so Dogen is, is saying perhaps that for the people of his time in Japan, uh, that their, their ignorance of the true Dharma, uh, in their ignorance of the true Dharma, they had acquired a passion for all kinds of complicated and false teachings. Uh, and he says, basically saying, well, I brought you, I'm the real dragon, you know, and I hope you, uh, I hope you don't get scared. Uh-huh. It's a commentary, Dogen says, do not get stuck in loving a carved, a carved dragon. We should go forward and love the real dragon. Uh-huh. But then Dogen says in his inimitable way, you should study that both the carved dragon and the real dragon have the power of forming clouds and rain. Uh, this is from a commentary by Tig and Leighton. Even the carved dragon has great power. Some people imagine that their practice is not real, but just a pet, but that their practice is a picture of Zazen. Actually, the carved dragon exists in vividly in your imagination. In that sense, it is real. So uh, we shouldn't disdain the carved dragon, but we should really appreciate when a real dragon shows up. Devote your energies to a way that directly indicates the absolute. Revere the person of complete attainment who is beyond all human agency. Actually, that's you, that's us. Gain accord with the enlightenment of the Buddhas. Succeed to the legitimate, the legitimate lineage of the ancestors' samadhi. Take up this practice, which you have already taken up. You've been doing it for seven days. Uh, constantly perform in such a manner, and you are assured of being a person such as they. This is a point that Dogen makes over and over again in a variety of teachings, that uh, the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas of the past, we are not different from the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas of the past. We are of the same nature, the same awakened nature, and as we practice, 
this becomes clear to us. So if you practice in such a manner, you're short of being a person such as they. And then the last line says, your treasure store will open of itself and you will use it at will. Which is a wonderful, just such a wonderful sentiment to, uh, to close this piece on. Your treasure store will open of itself and you will use it at will. As we practice, something opens in us and we have access to it. We see the opening of wisdom and compassion. And when that's available to us, when this treasure store is open, then we just naturally act towards all beings from that source, from the source of the treasure store. And again, if there's an aim of Zazen, if we dare to uh, conceptualize it, essentially it's just the door that the treasure store opens and we can play in it. We can dig around in the shelves and the cabinets and find things and take them outside and give them to people who might appreciate or use them. And never worry about them running out because it's an inexhaustible treasure store. And we can visit it over and over again, every time we sit down. And as we, as we gain accord with the enlightenment of the Buddhas, it's not about sitting down. It's actually, we have access to it all the time. And still, each of us is a work in progress. So I think I'm going to end there and uh, leave time for questions or comments about anything that we've discussed over the last uh, over the last week. Yeah, Mira. So the line about everyday mind or ordinary mind that seems really significant to me. So I'm trying to think of how. I can relate to that for myself. And is that like everyday activity? Does it have to do with everyday activity rather than some kind of um, transcendent type of mind state that you might want to get into? That I might want to get into. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to get into it. Um, my understanding is that enlightenment is not a state of mind. Enlightenment is an activity. And I think this is in accord with uh, this idea of practice realization that, that Zazen is the, the active expression of our already realized mind. And I think that in that sense, uh, ordinary mind, as you express it with your body, is expressed in each activity that one does. And where we may feel, well, we may feel we're missing the mark, then we can, we can realign ourselves. Uh, we can bring ourselves back into order. Uh, this is, I mean, I've told this very often, but 
gosh, I think it was 32 years ago or so, Master Sheng Yan, uh, who was a, a Chan teacher, who's passed away, came and gave a talk here. And in the Q&A, uh, Laurie asked him, what's the most important thing for a, a lay student in our practice? And uh, his answer was very quick, was regulate your life. And that really pierced me. Regulate your life means create some kind of order or rule to it. So yes, your ordinary mind is expressed in all the things we do. Does that make sense? Thank you. Uh, let's see here. Oh, I'm in gallery. Um, Nathan. Not hearing you. No. Well, if I could lip read. <laughs> Go ahead, Nathan. You can unmute now. Thanks, Blake. Thanks, Rosanna. Here you go. Um, a couple parts to this question. Um, does our experience of Zazen matter? Um, does it matter? <laughs> is, 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 is that a question? Does our experience of Zazen matter? Um, the second part, um, does our idea of our Zazen matter? And are we qualified to evaluate our Zazen? <laughs> um, I think the experience, I think our experience of Zazen matters, but I don't think we're capable of uh, articulating how it matters. Uh, when we say matter, uh, I'm sort of reinterpreting the question. Does our experience of Zazen shape us? Uh, and that, to me, the answer would be essentially yes, but on no particular, there's no particular time frame for that. Uh, so in that sense, uh, I feel it matters. Um, ultimately, I mean, we have teachers so that the teacher can be a mirror to reflect back and we can see ourselves in, uh, in what the teacher is, is sharing with us or what the teacher sees. Um, but ultimately, you are the only one who can evaluate your practice in your life. Nobody else can do that. Thank you. Questions here? Let's see, I see a hand out there from Judy. Thank you, Hosan. I heard someone say recently that a lot of the sources of conflict are people uh wanting to do good and so i'm wondering in terms of the last line uh in the fukan zazengi about the treasure store opening um how you practice with uh not getting caught in that or how to come back from that Well, his statement is a little more simple than that. So your treasure store will open of itself and you will use it at will. You know, he's not saying you will, then you're going to do good. He's just saying, we'll use it freely. As far as I'm concerned, 
I try to keep an awareness that anything that I may do or consider doing that I think of as so-called good is almost inevitably going to have its bad side or its shadow side. It contains nothing is nothing is pure. Uh, and the outcome of even a, a well-intentioned activity that comes from a wholesome mind and wholesome uh, action and intention uh, may also have some dimensions of uh, a negative effect or impact as well. Uh, and so anything that we do, it's important to recognize that there's another side potential within it and to then observe how that activity unfolds very carefully. And it means, for me, it means uh, being pretty as careful as I can be about what I say and do. Uh, and I've gotten a little better at that. Uh, and often that means just refraining from doing something or refraining from saying something. Uh, because even though it seems like the right thing at the time, I sit with it and I reflect on it and recognize that I don't, if, it, if it's something that involves somebody else, I don't have any control over how that person is going to feel. So I can do my best to try to, uh, try to imagine that, but recognize I'm never going to see the wholeness. I can't even see the wholeness of my own activity much less can I see the wholeness of somebody else's uh, response. But don't get paralyzed. You know, this is like, uh, I, I think about, you know, the, uh, Katagiri Roshi, who's written a number of wonderful books. And his first book was called Returning to Silence. And his second book was called, You Have to Say Something. <laughs> so I think, it's like, there's a really rich teaching right there. Uh, but when you say something, there's, you know, there's some uncertainty or risk involved, but you have to say something. Otherwise, by not saying something, you may be saying something worse. Yadin. Thank you, Hoseline. Um, with what you're talking about right now, isn't the other sort of cautionary part is that when we've decided we're going to do something good, that a danger we often find ourselves in is, is that we're good and us deciding that it's good and our attachment to it being good and our way that we're going to do it because we decided this is what is they need. So how does one move forward with deeds that are viewed as good because we all are blessed and burdened with these minds. So how do we move forward with that? And remember, that just because I've decided it's good, it's not necessarily that way. Right. Did, did you hear that question? Okay, good. Um, what I try to do in those, I, I really, I hear what you're saying. Uh, what I try to do in those circumstances is uh, a couple of things. Introspectively, I, 
try to look really carefully at what my motivation might be. You know, is it wholesome? Uh, do I see uh, some taint of self-centeredness or ego or righteousness in it? So I, that's the that's an internal look, and at the same time, uh, I try to talk to a whole bunch of people. Now that's not a guarantee because you could talk to a whole bunch of people who all think the same thing and miss the people who don't. But um, I do, you know, in decisions that I make in my life and particularly decisions that I make in any leadership position, I try to consult as widely as I can. And that's the best that I can do. And then, uh, There's a characterization of Zen as one continuous mistake. Uh, and if there's a mistake, if something uh, turns out to be uh, not useful, then you correct your course. You know, you take responsibility for it and correct it. But um, yeah, we can, we can, we're all prey to some, some kinds of self-delusion. That's, that's as close as I can get. Thank you. Uh, Helen. I was wondering in which ways are you not ordinary yet? In which ways am I not ordinary yet? Oh. <laughs> um, I'm not loath to give you an answer. It's it seems that's a really good question. Uh, Have, there's areas of self-centeredness. There's areas of egotism. Uh, there's areas of there's kinds of ambition. All of those are uh, at least potential pitfalls. Does that does that make sense? I'm still just I struggle with this word ordinary. Okay, tell me what's the struggle. It tends to piss me off a little. Oh, well, say more. <laughs> um, I don't Did you hear that? <laughs> okay, go. Um, so I'm trying to understand and maybe make peace with it. I mean, there's just this, let's strive to be ordinary. And, oh, just really. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, no, I, I totally understand. You can't strive. It, this is, this is, this is actually, it's like dropping body and mind. Uh, it's not a matter of, you, you so it's like, there's a koan, um, or yeah, in a koan, it's like, there's a true man of no rank, true person of no rank going in and out of the holes in your face. Uh, and sometimes you meet a Zen person who you feel is like really saying, hey, I'm a true person of no rank. You know, that's what that's the smelliness I think that you're talking about. Is that right? I don't know. I, I mean, often it's, you know, so just referred to as being ordinary. And I, I don't totally understand it myself. There's yeah, well, um, good. This you you have just unleashed a whole series of comments and questions. I can see the hand, the hands are going up left and right. Um, we have to end soon, but uh, 
I think this is great. I think, you know, you've, you've touched something live for you and uh, evidently for others, which I think is great. Vince, you had your... I was just gonna say for me, mind is you know our society today in particular wants everyone to be amazing and special and fantastic 24 7 everyone's got to be awesome all the time and zen poses the opposite thing which is you know you just live your life it's ordinary there's nothing special um and it's just this amazing medicine, this counterbalance to our totally consumerist, destructive society. Yeah. And when I hear ordinary mind, and when you say Sojan was ordinary, that's what I think. He was ordinary in the sense he didn't buy into any of that crap. He just lived his life in a normal, non-special, regular way. And that's the message he that's true, and I will say he had an ego. You know, uh, those of us who worked with him, or those of us who were sort of coming up as senior students, felt it. You know, I'm not gonna. It's it's not a criticism. It, it's just natural. But I, I, what brings to mind uh, about ordinary? It's like we have this whole we. We have this very weird relationship to it in this country. Uh, we fetishize so-called celebrities who are, some of whom are famous for being famous, you know? And then we have whole magazines like People Magazine or Us Magazine, which shows, you know, these celebrities uh, out walking with their kids or, or getting coffee or an ice cream because like, Oh, these celebrities, they're just like us. It's like, we want it both ways. We want to, it's, it's a it's very twisted culture that we have. We want to raise people uh, up on a pedestal, and then we want to cut them down. So that's no, none of that is ordinary activity. <laughs> So one more, I think, uh, two more. Oh God, Paolo, who hasn't spoken yet. Thank you, Hassan, for uh, for everything. And it seems to me also sometimes when you're in a more authentic environment, um, where people are conscious, we almost need to flip it, don't we? I mean, ordinary doesn't mean to make dull or make everything gray. It's ordinary for a plant in a particular season to come to full bloom. Sometimes the ordinary can include the fantastic, but it's nothing more than the ordinary in bloom. And then it's gone. Yeah. It, it's being attached to it. It's having to, you know, it's the, the tail wagging the dog. Right. The dog wagging. That's, that's really good. I think that ordinary is not a objective quality. You know, it, it's very interesting. I had an opportunity uh, a few years ago to be part of a uh, Buddhist Catholic dialogue in Rome, and we had an opportunity to meet the Pope. And I'm not saying this to brag. I'm just, I'm sorry. Uh, um, and it was really interesting for the Catholics. It was like bells and whistles and fireworks were going on in meeting the Pope, which, which I can understand. Uh, for some of us Buddhists, you know, not so much. And to actually encounter him, he, he looked at you, he listened, and, you know, he wasn't he was just a person in that moment. And I found that uh, that was very moving to me. Uh, and really, I look for that in my encounters with anyone. 
and it can happen everywhere, not with anybody in any special position. You don't have to be in a special position to be ordinary. Anyway, um, Mary, you have the last word. I, I was thinking of alternate translations like um, uh, unelaborated or unadorned or authentic or nothing extra. Yeah, authentic. I mean, this is one of the things that I love about uh, this music that I play is mostly thinking about bluegrass music, which is pretty virtuosic. But what I loved when I first saw it as, you know, as a young teenager uh, was that the music was so alive and exciting and really pretty difficult. But that the people, and I think this is true of, this is all true of, this is true of all folk musicians. It's like, when they stopped playing, they were just pretty ordinary people speaking to the audience. It wasn't like, you know, we're used to these very elaborate performance styles and a folk style is not an, it's, the music is, is intense and complicated but the performance style itself is then ordinary. So anyway, this is a wonderful exploration and it's a great place to, uh, to end our study of Fukunza Zengi.